Sponsored by JMR Rentals, professional digital cinema and broadcast rentals in Brooklyn, New York. To find out more, visit their website, jmrny.com. Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend, where we go behind the scenes and talk to the creators of independent entertainment. I'm Jason Godby, and joining me via Zoom today, he is the director of the new feature, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me, Mr. Adam Lippy. Welcome, Adam. Thanks very much, Jason. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Um, took a look at the, the uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me uh, trailer. Uh, great title, by the way. Looks like a lot of fun. I want to talk about the movie, but first I want to talk to you about you uh, and kind of get a sense of your background. So how did you get into filmmaking? Like, what's your origin story? It started when I was 15, and there was a review in the school paper for Robert Altman's Shortcuts written by one of the teachers. And I absolutely, I read it, and I could not relate to it in any way. And I started thinking, hey, people should write reviews for actual high school students since we're in high school. And so I started going to the movies and writing reviews and putting the reviews, uh, a packet of them, next to the school paper, if not on top of them at, at, at a certain point. And um, the school paper was not very happy about that. And the dean had a meeting with me trying to make me join the school paper, which I did not want to do. And so I kept writing reviews, and eventually they forced me to join the school paper. Um, and I wrote reviews there for a couple of years before I basically got fired for not wanting to do anything else. Uh, I did refuse to just be the arts editor and actually write about the arts because I didn't honestly care. When I was 16, I made uh, a film for a class uh, with uh, my friends uh, called The Stranger. And it was about, uh, based on the old canard about how if your roommate committed suicide in college, you automatically get a 4.0 for the semester. And we turned it into kind of a horrific comedy, but serious, but silly, but basically what 16-year-olds would come up with. Um, it was only a couple of years later that, that they actually made a feature film with a very similar premise called Dead Man on Campus. But then I went to college, went to film school. Um, I made short films, uh, didn't necessarily take to it. Uh, I realized that after, after graduating that I, I didn't really enjoy the process much. So I would occasionally write for magazines and, and newspapers and stuff. And then in 2003, I ran a website and that went on for a while. And then by 2008, I started writing for a newspaper in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I, I'd moved there in 2007 from New York. And in 2008, uh, I, in 2009, I started my own website and podcast, became a film critic for uh, lots and lots of websites and Rotten Tomatoes and um, was a film critic for years. And then I was in the middle of a conversation in about 2013 when uh, I was talking to someone and they said, hey, I really want to make a zombie movie. And I said, why would you make a zombie movie? Everyone does that. Um, why not just make a virus movie where you can make up all your own rules and you can decide how people die and what, what happens to them? And he didn't like that idea. And I started writing and... Um, uh, you know, eventually I, I thought I had something of a script um, and just kept writing and writing and writing. And uh, eventually I had a first draft that was 144 pages, which is an obscenely long thing to do. And uh, it was filled with every particular way I could think of to die that I had never seen in a movie before. But it was still 
the premise was still intact from what eventually became the movie. But I tried to uh, make the movie first in Philadelphia, where I, uh, near where I live now, and couldn't find A, financing, or B, the cast that I wanted. And then I kept trying that in uh, 2014 and f went to New York and cast it there, but couldn't get the locations that I wanted nor raise the financing in the way that I would like. And the locations were so expensive in New York. So in 2015, I made the the film in Philadelphia using the New York actors and would bust them in an Airbnb um, so they could stay overnight. Um, it was the only reasonably cheap way to do it. And we just used mostly a Philadelphia crew and shot it in 2015, ran out of money uh, in August of 2015, uh, shot one day between August of 2015 and April of 2017, but kept up with all the key players and uh, finished production over a, over basically 20, all of 2017, shot five days throughout 2017, these massively complex days um, just to finish the film, and then was in post-production for a long time because when you're making a low-budget film, what happens is you can't afford to pay all the best people the top rate. So even though it's a movie that has 40 locations, 45 speaking parts, 100 extras, it was done SAG, it's very, very low budget for what it is. I mean, it's the script is written as if it were a $15 million movie because I never intended to direct it at all. I thought someone else was going to do it. And then I realized in 2014 that no one else was going to do it. So it might as well be me. And I had the script that I thought would work. So... Uh, post-production took a long time it was you know finding the composer finding you know different editors you know someone starts to edit on the film and then they got to take corporate work and so then you got to find a replacement and that other person is doing their regular job and so you know they're doing what you want and and it's the, the relationship is working out but it's still going to be slow and then there's always these delays and it just keeps going and what uh ended up happening is we didn't actually finish until um the end of march um and of this year uh, which was odd because the movie is about a viral pandemic in inner city Philadelphia. And because it takes place on the hottest day of the year, there's massive dehydration. People can't tell who's infected and who's not because the, the disease causes massive dehydration. People start attacking each other. One of these attacks is caught in a viral video. The military comes in to try to slow it down. They realize they can't slow it down quickly enough. So they fence off the inner city to let everybody die. And it's about the people who are left there to die. So this is not some COVID movie. This is not no. about... So you, you you spent, what, like six, seven years yes. trying to get this thing made? Oh, my God. The kismet, the coincidence um, mm -hmm. is something you never could have planned. But no. I'm sure most people will think that was like, oh, my God, how'd this guy get a feature film together so fast uh, in the short amount of time? We You know, we've only been... We've only been in this situation for like three, four months. It was finished that weekend that we were quarantined in Pennsylvania. So uh, the sound mix came in that weekend. And uh, yeah, I had to, you know, I, I had to watch scenes that I realized that had an additional level of cruelty because the, the villains are pretty open about what they want to do, which is exploit it, the disease, and use it in viral warfare. And they're choosing this particular neighborhood because it's poor and black and Hispanic. Uh, and they know they can get away with it. That's like you had a crystal ball or something. That's, that's incredibly topical. Um, was, did you mean for the movie to have like this social political yes. message? Okay. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, that was okay. very intentional. The, 
the villains are based on what if Roy Cohn and Joseph McCarthy were in a sexual relationship. Um, so every scene that they are in is uh, basically a sex scene. Um, but they don't, they just flirt with each other. But if you didn't pick up on it, you didn't pick up on it. It's okay if you don't. Most of their, their dialogue is overtly comedic and mocking everyone else in the room. And so I just told the actors, here's what you guys are doing. Here's what I'm looking for. Play with it. Um, and so they're, they're making sexual jokes, but without actually referring to sex. And did you have, are there present day allegory figures for the, cause you know, Roy Cohen's been dead for a while and right. Uh, yeah. So, but like, do, are they supposed to be, um, certain people now? Kind of, did no, you write... no, no. Well, sometimes no, not, I didn't write it, but when I cast it, I would tell an actor, okay, you're a bit like, there's an administrator in the film, um, and, you know, he's played by a guy named uh, David Denny, good actor. And he said, well, what am I? He's only got a couple lines in the film. And he said, so what, how should I play this? And I'm like, well, you're playing the stuffy administrator character. He's like, you mean like a black nerd? I'm like, yes. So I gave, I said, do you know there was that speechwriter who worked in George W. Bush's ad ad administration? And I gave him the picture and it's the guy who's cross-eyed and bald. And, and I said, do him. And it's a guy who's only in, you know, he's in two scenes. He's very good in them. And he's only got a couple lines. But I thought, here's here's what you should go for. But everybody else I kind of, you know, let explore within within that. Not everybody has a, you know, a, an analog to an actual figure. Sometimes people make references to things. But not not, uh, not nothing is as overt as what I told the villains, that here's what you're doing. But it, it, it is set in present day 2020 America? Or yeah, is it, it is. Set back it is. Okay. It's just, uh, they're, they're not, the characters aren't named, but, well, they are, they're named in the script. One is the general and the other is serious business, is his henchman, which is a, a, a super obscure reference to uh, a 1987 bomb called Ishtar, um, in which the opening song that Warren Beatty and uh, Dustin Hoffman are singing is called Dangerous Business. And I wanted to call him Dangerous Business, but I realized, okay, well, that's a bit much. Were there any other kind of references? Because it sounds like, in terms of the sense of humor of it, it sounds very broad. You know, like it's it's a it's a, it's it's it, it's both lowbrow and highbrow. So there's there's some very lowbrow things that happen, and then there'll be a discussion about the Citizens United Supreme Court case. Uh, there'll be a, a lengthy animated sequence about what happens inside the body, uh, and then there'll be a serious uh, treatise on all sorts of issues. Or about why poor people picking on other poor people, you know, and how that happens and how it's sort of a trickle down economics. So it's this strange mix of serious and silly and whatever people take from it, if they just want to watch it because they want their standard horror film, you know, sex and gore stuff, that stuff's there. It's not why I made the film, but it's there. If you want to be a 14 year old boy about it, I accept that. I know that 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 audience exists and. Uh, they might embrace something like that, and they might get bored during the sequences where people are having conversations. I tried to make the conversations realistic within the parameters of a horror film, where people don't act like idiots, but they're still, you know, within what would happen. Like, you know, they, they get paranoid, they talk about conspiracy theories, they get scared, some of them overreact. You have all these situations that would be normal, um, but I thought of it as, because they're they're poor and they're they have reason to be aggrieved. This is just piling on. Like, this isn't like I'm going to panic, you know, 100% of the time. This is, 
okay, so now this is another terrible thing I've got to put up with in my life. So were there specific, like, influences that, uh, like, you know, was it, like, Shaun of the Dead or was it, you know what? Yeah, there's an element of Shaun of the Dead uh, that I like, which is uh, very much, which is if you took the zombies out of the film, it would be a movie about a guy who doesn't pay attention to his surroundings. Sort of a, a satirical point about people who are not just ignorant, but also oblivious. And so I took that element of it. I took uh, Peter Jackson's uh, Brain Dead or Dead Alive and with the extreme gore that is inherent to that. But one of the other things I was very much thinking of is a Japanese women in prison movie called Female Convict Scorpion, um, I think Prisoner 701. I think that's the second one, uh, which was very influential on Kill Bill. But I saw about 20 years ago and was basically it's the it's the best women in prison movie ever made. And it's not even really close. Um, the only one that's close is the first one in the series. Um, but the point of that film is it's a very standard women in prison movie from the basics. So you have your lesbian wardens, you have your gratuitous sex scenes, you have the, you know, the violence and the fighting, the cat fighting and the, the, the males who, you know, are, are a bit sexually aggressive. All of the stuff that would be in a women in prison movie in the guise of a women prison movie while being a, a extraordinarily surreal and beautiful looking movie that's a scathing uh, commentary on the patriarchy in Japan um, that has camera work that is uh, unimaginable because you can't I've seen thousands of movies in my life I was a film critic for so long that when you watch that movie you genuinely do not know where they put the camera you cannot figure it out when you're looking at it and what I was conscious of when I first saw the film was, yes, this is a masterpiece, but, and, and the, also the, the main character doesn't speak a word in the entire film. Um, it's, it's a masterpiece, but what they've done is they've, they clearly had the Roger Corman idea, which is as long as you put in enough gore and sex into this film, you can do whatever you want. And so they did that, and then they made an astonishing film that blows, every time I show it to anybody new, they're utterly blown away. Um, it is a great film. And I, I thought, as long as I deliver the goods on the gore and the sex, I can do whatever I want with that, within that parameter. So that's probably the more influential film. Was your first objective to make a funny movie? Or was it like a, a George Romero message kind of thing in the, in the horror movie? Well, I find George Romero stuff often to be very heavy-handed. And I wanted to avoid that. So my goal was I'm I'm making a comedy in the guise of a horror film. So the jokes are more important to me. I remember when the teaser was first cut together years ago and one of the actors saw it and because it's very well shot and very well lit, the one of the actors saw the trailer and he says looks more like a horror film. I guess did the comedy not come through and I said, "Well, the movie is still funny." And <clears throat> at that point we'd only shot like 60% of the film, but we cut together a teaser to try to raise some money. And I said, the movie's still funny, but this this stuff that's in the teaser is more about atmosphere. And, you know, you can't help but get a little creepy because of the way that it was lit. So it has, I guess, different tones depending on the scene, whether it's it's always supposed to be entertaining in some way. And if I sneak in my broccoli of social messaging and people enjoy it, that's that's great. Um, if they want to have a conversation with it, I'll talk to them or they want to have discussion discussion amongst themselves. Um, at the same time, you're you're like, OK. How do I fulfill these genre tropes while still sort of making fun of them a lot? I mean, the movie makes fun of a lot of things that would be in these movies. People 
who believe that they're in an action movie and they're really not the hero, but they think they are that kind of thing. I'm in a, I'm indebted to Big Trouble in Little China in that way, and indebted indebted to to all sorts of horror tropes where you know people behave like idiots and that's that's man you know mandated. And I'm like, how about we not do that? How about we try to deal with it as a realistic a way as possible, where the military who's brought in to, and they're like on roofs the whole time, um, when they interact with the public, they're uh, indifferent to a little bit mocking of the people on the street because it's just like, well, you're basically fodder. So you go about, you go ahead about your day, but you know, you in essence don't matter. It's interesting because um, horror is a very good, uh, it's like, it's like a good varietal blend, you know, like it, it blends well with other genres and horror comedy. seems to be a combination that has been successful, but I think there, if you, to make a good one is, is intensely difficult. Correct. There's there's a very small list, very short list of Tucker and Dale versus Evil, Cabin in the Woods, Evil Dead Two, Reanimator, uh, Brain Damage, um, Brain Dead, Slash Dead Alive, um, and then you, you you run short after that because it's not it's just not a it's a very complex thing to pull off, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend that I did it, but uh, that, that's for everybody else to to judge that I. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. I think horror is a great genre to start out with because it's so popular. It also means that you can get it made without having a big cast and that people will watch it without knowing anybody who's in it because they think of every... It also means, oh, well, any of these people can be cannon fodder. You might kill anybody because I've never heard of any of these people because you can't always pull off the psycho thing where the the big star gets killed off in the first 35 minutes or they did the same thing in Scream or, or Dress to Kill, which is basically a remake of Psycho, but where they kill off, oh, okay, but if you don't have a big star, then anybody might get, you know, chopped to death at any moment. And so you have that advantage. I tried not to go so crude in terms of, now the film is crude occasionally, but go so crude in terms of, okay, now you're going to get killed in this way. I tried to come up with a little bit more Baroque ways to kill people. And then what would the actual reaction be to that? Was there kind of a touchstone for you where you said like, this is what the tone is going to be, or this is where, this is the thing, if we ever get lost tonally, this is the thing that we're going to come back to? This is going to sound naive, but the answer is no. Uh, um, so the reason I say that is I just, you just kind of have to let it ride. Like the, the, the script is written in a way where the tone changes sometimes in the same scene and, you know, changes twice. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. Um, I, 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 I think of filmmaking, especially at this level, as a purely self-indulgent manner. Um, and I have to be entertained by what I do or be interested in what it is. And if other people take to that, then, then great. But if they don't go along with the tone, then they don't go along with the tone. It's something I, I, I can't control. I mean... One of the bigger influences on me was um, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, um, which is uh, from 1986. Um, and part of the reason I, I love that movie so much um, is how many different characters have bit parts. And, you know, they're so interesting. And you're like, that would be, make a great movie about John Sales as the cop or Tracy Walter as the liquor salesman or any of that stuff. But because that movie changes tones so often 
and you'd think there'd be whiplash, but it starts out as kind of like a, a silly comedy, and then it becomes a sex comedy, and then it becomes a thriller, and then it goes kind of back to a goofy comedy, and then it becomes a thriller again, then back to goofy comedy, and ends ends as a thriller, but then goes to a comedy again in the last five minutes. And you're like, how do you even do this? Why is this working? I don't really know the answer to it. And here, I mean, this is a this is going to sound like I made it up. This is a true story. Um, while I was trying to raise money for this film, um, I was selling some of my Laserdisc collection. And someone uh, bought, my, I, was, I was selling my Laserdisc of Swimming to Cambodia, which is a Spalding Gray monologue directed by Jonathan Demme. And um, someone bid on it. It wasn't that very much money. And there was nothing special about the Laserdisc except that there's an alternate score by Laurie Anderson, which you can't buy. And I looked at who I was supposed to send the movie to, and it said Jonathan Demme, who had directed the movie some 20, 30, nearly 30 years before. And I'm like, this is obviously a joke, right? And I look up the address, and no, that's that's where he would have lived. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. You know, Central Park West, right You know, right by the Natural History Museum. And it later turned out, you know, that was his email address from the, the Sony hack, uh, his email address was was you know he talking to amy pascal so it absolutely was the same guy and um i i wrote a letter and put it in the laser disc i don't know if you ever read it but i was basically saying i'm starting my feature film in a month uh it's the first film i've ever made uh something wild means means a lot to me I, how do you balance that tone how do you shift from one thing to another now he never answered and i don't know if you ever got it but i slipped it in the laser disc maybe they thought it was a receipt and they threw it out i don't know but it was it was the kind of thing where I'm like, well, maybe what I should do is just go with the instincts and just play the scenes as they're being played. And, and I uh, if it if it ends up being tonally all over the place, maybe it was unpalatable from the start and it doesn't matter. Um, I, I just hope people enjoy it sort of on an individual level as opposed to worrying about, oh, well, I'm feeling this now and I'm feeling this. There's so many characters in the film. And there's so much going on that I'm hoping that at least people take a, a good 10 or 15 minutes that they enjoyed out of it because maybe it'll in my mind i'm like well maybe it'll play better in pieces for all i know but you can't control that no it's an interesting take you know like Shaun of the dead does the same thing like Shaun of the dead switches it gets serious it, it like it and it gets stupid silly and like it's just really well handled and i think a lot of that is the editing i think a lot of that and and knowing kind of like okay, that joke doesn't work there because then we spoil this moment, you know, or we can't just undercut this moment with a joke or maybe this is the time to put in a joke because we're getting too serious kind of thing. This was a, an unfortunate leap uh, of complicated tones that no one should ever do as their first film. And uh, I made the mistake, so, you, so I made the mistake so you don't have to. Would that be the advice that you would give somebody? Like, don't, don't try to make a movie with this many tones in it? Not just that, but don't make it so big where you where you have forty locations. I mean, the that one hundred and forty four page version I told you about was way worse about this stuff. Like seventy locations, a hundred speaking parts, um, big action sequences. Now we we still retained all the military and the cops. All that stuff's in the movie, but the, the stuff's just smaller and it's just unnecessary to go that big. It takes the focus away from the characters, and it was just a lot of absurd things that I thought was you know that I thought they were funny. Like, you know, and I'm like the one big scene, like satirizing the movie Crank, which is pointless because it's already a satire. So, you know, just start pulling things out for budget reasons and uh, going, all right, I don't really need any of this. And then you just keep pulling, you know, taking it out. And then what, what ends up happening is 
the movie ends up being overstuffed because it's, you know, with the credits is 102 minutes, but it's 96 minutes. And I remember this started as a 144 page script. The rough cut w would have run, if we'd done it a normal way, would have run about two and a half hours. And we had to pull out, you know, another 40. So the deleted scenes, there's about 45 minutes of them. Now, are, are all of those good? They're not. Maybe there's good at 10 or 15 minutes, but there's people who did some excellent work. Some, some one of the actors in particular had three monologues in, a, in one scene. Uh, but it took place an hour and 10 minutes in and he was a relatively minor character. So we just had to cut out two of them um, because it was just like, OK, I think he's great in this. And when when I went back to New York to do some ADR with the actors, uh, I went over to his house and showed it to him and he loved it. And he said, is there any more? And I said, no, there isn't. But but I'm glad you liked it. And, you know, when you know, I hope you can put it on your reel. Uh, and use it in some way or another. Uh, unfortunately, we're in a situation where nobody's real really matters right now. What are the plans going forward? Uh, how are you guys doing with distribution? Well, dis di distribution's not an answer I can I can give you in a half hour show. Uh, it's too complicated for independent films. There's no money in it. It's it's basically impossible. You can get distribution. You won't get a cent out of it. It's it's uh, it's it's works against you. There's no upfront money. The back end money is covered in what's called marketing minimums. So. My plan is basically, and I've, I've entertained all the offers, talked to lots of distributors, and is, is just to kind of slowly release it on lots of lots of different platforms over a long period of time. And, you know, when, when it's available, you know, you know, just, you know, find your favorite search engine and look up Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me uh, or go to waitwaitdon'tkillme.com and I'll have it, you know, up there, um, you know, where, where it can be found. And then it'll, you know, come out on the, in the usual places over a period of six or seven months. Would you say this is a resume picture for you? A calling, a calling card of sorts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it shows that I can do serious things. It shows I can do silly things. I mean, is it a commercial for itself? Sure. But the next film that I wrote that I that I wanted to make at the end of the year is three characters in a room screaming at each other, um, on one location. So uh, I was going to go the opposite route. I was like, well, if I'm going to lose money, I might as well lose a whole hell of a lot less than that. Anyway, Adam, I'm going to let you go, but thanks so much. Um, so uh, it's waitwaitdon'tkillme.com is the website? Correct. yes. And and do you have a personal website as well if people want to know more about you or hire you to direct something? I have a Facebook account. The po the poster for the movie, uh, as beautifully drawn by Ellen Marcus, who did the animation. It's a bit outrageous, but I very much enjoy it. Uh, you can, you know, send me a message on Facebook if, if you want to hire me to direct something. When, whenever that is feasible. I don't know when that's going to be feasible. Yes, well, hopefully it will be soon. But uh, thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, when uh, w when you have another project, come on back, man. You know, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks very much, Jason. And that's all we got for you today. Thanks so much for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. For more of our content, including our movie reviews, visit our website, norestoftheweekendpodcast.com. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. I'd like to thank JMR Rentals for sponsoring this episode. You can check them out at jmrny.com. And once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Adam Lippi. So for Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.